HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45, 12.50. Have with me today the... Okay, so first of all, got J- Jackie Molecules, thank goodness, is in the booth. We don't have him for that much longer in the booth because he's going to go out, uh, you know, touring on the road there. How you doing, Jack? I'm good. You know who we don't have in the studio today? Two people that we don't have in the studio today that we're supposed to have in the studio are Nastasia de Hammer Lopez. Now, Nastasia, uh, her sister graduated from uh, Yale this week. Congrats. Uh, yeah, congrats. So uh, she uh, was driving back from Connecticut, and uh, the hydraulic clutch in the car she borrowed from her buddy, who who lives in New York and has a, a, a stick shift. It's, freaking- it's really funny you bring that up, because I'm looking for somebody with a stick shift, because I have to drive stick in Iceland, and I don't know how. Yeah, and well, I can't find anybody with a stick shift in New York. You know so, why? To prove it your sucks. point. Yeah, right, exactly. It gets you off the, when a light turns green, you're always the first one to, you know, if you have to vie with another car for position, if you have a stick shift, even if it's like a VW Bug, you will beat any top-of-the-line sports car with the acceleration from first to second, boom, you can, you just go what very about, fast. What about when you're stop and go on the FDR? Then you get, like, hip problems over many years. Yeah, anyway, so what I'm saying is, so it, it burns out, and so she's not she's not here right now. I think, I think uh, she lost hydraulic pressure. It's a hydraulic uh, clutch in the car that she was driving. Anyways, uh, but... Is she okay? Yeah, yeah, she's fine. Like, Sounds she, dangerous. She, she didn't get hit. No, no, she's pulled off to the side of the road. Uh, and what was not working? The accelerator, the brake? No. So if you're, if you, so the hydraulic system on the on the clutch, if you basically, if there's a leak in the system, it just leaks pressure, the, and the clutch pedal falls to the floor. Now ordinarily, you can still kind of get moving. Um, she smelled burning, which at first she thought was the the plate actually burning during driving. But you know, after further thinking, we we think it's probably the uh, burning oil that was leaking out that she was smelling. Um, but you, you, a lot of times with a hydraulic clutch, when it goes, you can you can get it to run. You just can't use the clutch, but you can get it to run and go. But she wasn't able to, to get it to go. But here's the good part. So for those of you that know our section of the country, the East Coast, uh, I-95 is the road that runs. It's it's a flaming sack of crap. It's, yes. 
It's, There's usually two or three trucks on fire at any given time. Yeah, it's <laughs> often literally a flaming sack of crap, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so for those of you that drive like through Connecticut along I-95 or the Merritt, I-95 or the Merritt, there is a town with a sign that I love. It's my anus. <laughs> and my anus is... I knew you were going to say this. Yeah, yeah, it's next to Coscob. So you can do like cornhole my anus wow. jokes constantly. And whenever there's traffic in, in my anus, I never ever st- fail to say, heavy traffic through my anus. Oh, like every single time. <laughs> Even if it's just my dog in the car with me, I say it every time. So literally her car, she had a breakdown in my anus. Oh, oh my wow. God. What are the chances? Yeah. That's good. She's going to be the butt of a lot of jokes, that's for sure. Oh, uh, nice, nice. <laughs> uh, nice. So, uh, instead of uh, Nastasia, we have uh, our fearless leader, Patrick Martins, here. I will be like Nastasia. I will say next to nothing. Wow. And make scary faces. <laughs> Boom. Uh, now, who we don't have uh, in the studio right now, and I tweeted out twice that he would be here, so hopefully he will arrive. I don't know, Jack, maybe we can try to call him on the telephone and see what's up. We'll put the search team out for Yeah, him. Put, the, put the search team out. He could for... be lost in Now, the Jack, you have a connection know. to Mr. Leahy through a certain babysitting gig? Is well, this true? Well, let's tell the people who it is first. We got Jim oh, Leahy, right. supposed to be here right now. Jim Leahy is uh, the guy who started uh, Sullivan Street Bakery over, over 20 years ago now, I think. Yeah, we have no need for Jim today. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute. This is like pun central right here going on. But the uh, so the the point is is that um, you know for those of you that are you know my age or so, like you know in your forties, you can remember what New York was like when the bread here pretty much sucked. I mean, there were people who baked good bread, but like in general, the bread game in New York. It was Wonder Bread in the mid-70s. I mean, the first guy on the Upper East Side, which is a very wealthy neighborhood, was Eli Zabar. He had a place called EAT on 80th and Madison, and that was the first place that really baked, uh, you know, fresh bread, you know, passed a few loaves at a kind of a cookie store or something like that. But, yes, you could not find fresh bread, even in New York City back then. No, I mean, then in the 90s, you had, like, uh, I guess was, I guess when he started, right, the 90s? No, uh, well, Eli's was, uh, I no, think, no, in no, 80. Uh, oh. Uh, Jim. Jim. Sullivan Street. 20. 20, 25 years, I yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, you had, like, Amy's starting. Remember, Amy's Amy's Bread started around the same time on Sarah North Beth's Avenue. Kitchen was a kind of area, but I don't know if they sold loaves to uh, go. Anyway, Amy's, Amy's had a wholesale and, uh, and a retail. Um, Amy's Famous Bread was the cornmeal one with raisins in it. Oh, yeah, I used to get that on, on Saturday because I used to live right by her bakery. Anyway, point is, is that back in the day, nowadays... It used to be when you traveled to New York, you're like, hey, it's a great town. Bread sucks. You know what I mean? Seriously. Like, you would say that. You would expect that the bread you got on the table at a restaurant would suck. You would expect that the bread you would get out at a a, a place, even a cheese shop, you'd expect – I mean, don't even get me started on the cheese shops. You would expect that they would suck, Mm -hmm. right? And It was like Tuscany over here. Well, which is what we're (laughs) supposed to be talking about today. But So anyway, so Jim Jim Leahy was one of the uh, kind of early – people making decent bread here mm-hmm. in uh, in New York and Sullivan Street I remember it was a a revelation when I had it the first time I went there in the in the 90s uh, mid mid 90s I guess I had their Bianca their pizza Bianca mm. and it was the only thing like what I had had over on my honeymoon in Italy it was uh, it was good stuff anyway so very crusty bread right uh, for the most part, what his, his breads, yeah, oh, his so signature. Like the, the, the stuff, his signature breads he's known for now are probably like the Pugliese style, the Filoni, which is the huge one, and the Semi de Sesamo, which is the basically Pugliese with sesame seeds all over the outside, which is my personal favorite. So these are the signature breads that you'll see at a lot of restaurants, and there's a you know he. 
they had a split, so there's another bakery, another couple of bakeries that make his particular style of bread here in New York. He became famous generally among, you know, folks, people, uh, for uh, his no need, no, with a K, not no need to bake bread. Like, yeah. there's no necessity to yeah, bake he bread. He needs to do that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no need, uh, no need, which is, you know... My editor, actually, Maria Guarnaschelli, did his book also at Norton, and she's the one that came up with the tagline underneath it, no work, no need, no work bread. So it uh, sold more bread books than anyone's ever sold in the past. Because it was like, bread, no work, bread? What? You know what I mean? And so they sold so many of these things. Um, but the... the, the wait, oh, did, did, he, did, he, did he get here? No. No, no, no. We're going to no. look for him, though. Oh, so the... Um, Anyway, the point being that he kind of uh, championed this uh, this style, uh, which I don't, you know, I actually don't know where he came up with it, whether it was taught to him or or what. If he ever shows up, we'll ask him. I think he is a self-made man. I think he learned it all myself. Although I'm saying that with no knowledge of the issue whatsoever, I think he's a self-made man. But you, say, but you have no actual knowledge of the cooking issue, none whatsoever. Yeah. So the uh, <laughs> so the. So anyways, the, the point being is a very uh, influential uh, person in the world of bread. In fact, uh, you know, most people I know – so first of all, there's, there's two things that happened. This, this no-need thing came at a time when a lot of people, especially uh, pizza people that I – because I don't know as many bread bakers as I knew kind of people who – in the kind of pizza – world they you know were shifting to extreme long fermentations and retarding of dough when they're when they're making it uh and um obviously the longer you let something rise the less you need to need right and so i think that we've all shifted towards this kind of a lot of people have shifted towards these longer time format breads with less kneading and less less work because the only thing it takes is a little bit of foresight. So why do they do it? Just for the work issue or for gastronomic reasons no, as well, words, I'm like, sure. In other words, like, uh, no, I mean, look, the thing about the, the, no, the no need style, and I wish he was you know, here to like, talk about it, he hopefully will be, is, the, um, is that if you just let the bread rise for a long time, two things happen. One, the, the longer, like a short ferment means that you have a lot of uh, yeast in it, right? And so this tends to produce a relatively um, single, simple, profile of taste, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's uh, less kind of, uh, the, the yeast yeast is doing less to work on the base product, which is the flour. Mm-hmm. So the longer you, you raise, uh, the longer it takes to, to, to um, ferment, usually the more compli- complex the flavor is. And the more is. the flour has a chance to express itself. That's an interesting way. See, this, this, is, this is why Patrick Martins was the founder of Slow Food USA, because he comes up with these poetic terms like the flower expressing himself. You know what I mean? It's like, for me, I'm like such a technical head. Like, you know, I don't do the, you know, the, the poetic. That's why we should come more often, give you the, the poetry of the flower. The slow food. Yeah, well, we play each other off. Remember our sizzle together? We did good. We played. Oh, I'm yeah. like the old yeah. school guy. You're like the new school guy. Yeah. yeah I'll get a caller if we want to do that while we wait. Uh, uh, okay. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, caller, mm, caller, caller, you there? You're on the air. Oh, hey, sorry about that. Hey. Um, as a former cook and uh, current restaurant manager, I get a lot of questions about gluten-free and gluten-friendly, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how that breaks down under high heat, specifically in pizza ovens or deep fryers and deep fryers. You mean how gluten-free, how gluten-free coatings work in frying? Well, so like... If I'm putting items into a deep fryer that are not gluten-free, like how does that gluten that comes off those items 
breakdown um, in the fryer, if at all. Oh, I got you. Uh, so you're worried about the fact that you use the same fryer for your regular products as you use for your gluten-free stuff. Um, yeah. You know what? Oh, the bread's here, by the way. You know what? I've never thought about it before. My guess is that it's not uh, a problem because the the gluten – uh, while it's not really water-soluble, I also don't think it's oil-soluble. I think it's just non-soluble. So I don't think you're going to solubilize the gluten in, uh, in, your, in your fat oil. You do get particles, so it all depends on how clear your, uh, you know, your fat is. But I, you know, I would guess that your main problem is going to be a straight-up uh, straight contamination. So if you're having um, straight-up contamination product problems, but you know, assuming in, in a commercial frying situation you're frying in a tube fryer that has a cold zone, and most of that stuff is sifting down to the bottom of your fryer anyway. So I would say, and considering the fact that that gluten, um, even like straight up celiac, oh my God, Jim brought my favorite oil. How the hell did you know that was my favorite oil? What is wrong with you? <laughs> um, the uh, any, From DiPaolo's, my favorite place on earth. Oh my goodness. To conclude, the good news is you never have to wash your fryer. No, 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 no. So my point is is that uh, most people's responses to gluten is uh, are, are mediated. In other, words, it's, in other words, it's like it's not that like it's not that a tiny amount of uh, gluten is going to wipe them out. Uh, but that said, I think that if you're worried about it, it's always prudent to, to add this kind of thing. Fried in a fryer that also fries items with gluten. And then you're gold. You know what I mean? Like push it back on. In other words, like I wouldn't be worried that you're actually going to hurt somebody, but I would also push it back onto the consumer so that you're not trying to hide anything from them. I think that's always the safest way to go. What, what, do you, what do you think? Anyone? Um, yeah, it sounds good. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't too worried about it, but I didn't have a very good answer for people that were going to ask me either. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that you know, look, a lot of people have never cooked before, so they don't really understand how it works. They've never fried before, so it's true. When you're frying something that you know, especially if you do any dry fry stuff uh, that's not a batter. Like even a batter, you're throwing stuff off of the batter stuff when it, when it, especially when it first goes in. But anyone who's ever fried before knows that there's extra pre-dust on the outside. There's extra stuff. It's usually a lot of fried items aren't a straight liquid batter, and even in a straight liquid batter, let's say you're going tempura on on it, right? You're getting all those little blebs of crap that fry off. And I don't know anyone on earth who's ever fried anything that hasn't gotten a piece of the last fry occasionally in their life stuck onto the fry that they have now, right? I mean, come on. It's be honest but the fact of the matter is, is it's a small amount i think as long as you're and if you know you're frying something that is gluten-free you can be pretty scrupulous about the skim beforehand and once the stuff is skimmed all the rest of the stuff falls to the bottom of the cold zone and you're not going to do the person uh, i don't think uh, any 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 harm mm-hmm. right Anyone? Anyway, so uh thanks for that but now we, we have to talk about uh, the bread and if you have any no need bread questions we have what Oh, my God. He comes in. He brings – but now he has to pee. You, like this is uh, – <laughs> all right. So we'll, 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 we'll hold off. I'll outfield any more bread questions. We what? Before we talk, I'll wash my hands. Okay. Okay. He's going to – even though he's not an employee of Roberta's gym. He's still going to wash his hands. He's, he's t- well, you say he's not going to wash his hands? He will wash his hands. He will, will, he's yes. in no urine facility. Uh, his bread has no urine in it, yeah. which is great. Okay. So wow. – No patina of urine. This that, happens to be – on the label. If this is the oil that I'm thinking of, why the, is it your favorite? That's so because of the breed of olive, it, of course. It's the favorite. So here's what happens every year. It's not oil is an agricultural crop, 
as so we all know. So it goes up and down. It goes up and down and changes. Yeah. So for a bunch of years, my favorite oil was uh, made by, uh, I forget, the guy's name was, um, starts with a G. Like He used to make the oil for Fontana Salsa, which was the supplier in Sicily that made this mix of Nocciolara. Um, oh, my God. What was the other one? Nocciolara. Uh, and two other olives that they grow in 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 Sicily, and that was like my favorite oil because I like I, I'm heavy on I like green, I like like er, like herby grassy green with a lot of bite. Mm-hmm. Typically, not always, but anyway. So like, and so w- whenever I go to uh, buy a new thing of uh, oil, of like finishing oil or eating oil, I'm just like, hey, what do you got that I like? And like, this is one of the ones I think if it's the one I'm thinking of. This is um, where do you shop for your oil? I used to go to Fairway because I always loved Steve Jenkins, but I don't think he does anything with Fairway anymore. I'm really? pretty sure he doesn't. Yeah, I know he doesn't. Yeah, Fairway has yeah, changed. Fairway I mean, didn't they just file? Way out. Yeah, file for yeah? bankruptcy. Too. For real? Yeah. I th- well, I thought they were still expanding. But they're not closing somehow. It was a restructuring, but they did file for bankruptcy. That's good. Um, so it's um, yeah, hmm? it's uh, I buy it at Depalos. Listen. If you're ever in New York City, right, and you like Italian products, then you have to go to DePaulo's on uh, on Grand Street and Mott. I mean, they've been there for eight million years. Well, like like ninety. They they moved across the street as as far as as far as they went. And um, but I always ask Anne, my wife, who's a cheesemonger, if if uh, their European cheeses are the best of their kind. Are they there? Because I mean, some of these old historic places, they don't get the best cheeses that Europe no, produces. Depalos gets the best of what they get. Yeah. In other words, it's like it's like the best. Depalos will get the best that is legally uh, legally available. Okay. Like Lou and Sal and and Marie, who are the for the you know the most of the family that runs along with their wives, the kids, and the cousins, and and Renee, which is another guy there who works there. They have this thing where they don't like to break the law. And so unlike a lot of other uh, cheese folks, they won't, like, on the sly bring in stuff that's right, not right, legal right. or not Raw legit. milk or, yeah, yeah. They also, like, will never lie to you. They'll also never sell you a product that's over the hill. So, like, mm. the fact of the matter is – and you know what's coming in today? The DePaulo's – I don't know if I'd known you were going. Do you know the Marcelino's in today? No, it's not. Oh, it's not I, in? That's what I was going for. Oh, really? I wanted the Marcelino. Oh. Uh, am, I, am I on? I wanted the Marcelino, right? That's what I was going for because I realized that in order to show off this really mediocre example of Tuscan bread <laughs> – and by mediocre example of Tuscan bread, I mean it's just like you would get in Tuscany. So <laughs> and so yeah. to, to understand the bread, you have to understand the cuisine that's, that, it's, that it functions for, that it lives for. So I, I think that's my approach. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would, I would rate this for my, Tusk, my best Tuscan game like a 4. Three. Wait. So, what's your best Tuscan game rate? Well, like, I would say I'm very. What's the most it can get? A well, four and I, well, I mean, I'm you know, if I can get a seven on any mm-hmm. loaf of bread, I'm really happy. I'm very contented. <laughs> An eight or nine is is you know, sometimes happens, but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, as we all know in the food business, it's all about consistency, right? Yeah. And as we all know, good cooks, good bakers, all hate themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh come on, please! No, because you, ha- you, you, you never, th- you never I think, think you just no, hate you, you do. You never what? think that, you, you never think you're perfect. You never, you never think you've reached anything we, we, perfect. We, we can always, there's always room for improvement. It's like yeah. that last cocktail so, that you just mixed, yeah. that you were, you were, you know, you, you taste, and you're like, you know, I just could have like put a little bit more vermouth in that, in that, uh, in that, uh, um, 
Give me a vermouth drink, David. Martini. A martini. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, let me ask you, you. Uh, so, why, why can't you duplicate wait, 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 a nine wait, all the time? Wait, if wait, you wait, make before, a nine. before we get this, two yeah. things. One, people want to know, is the character in Trailer Park Boys named after you? Wait, I'm going to do one thing real quick. I like this. <laughs> That's the bread being sliced. And two... Don't go through your knee. Yeah, oh, my God. That would be the pants. third time that's ever happened in the studio. So the uh, – oh, my God. You know what? The, do you remember, like, in college when those people who'd never sliced bagels before started slicing bagels and they would slice the bagel into their hand yeah. and bleed all over oh, everything? Yeah. yeah. Awesome times. I learned, I learned to have incredible respect for meat slicers at the age of 15 because I cut my fingertip off. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah, me too. The only real damage yeah. I've done, yeah, I did a thumb into the meat slicer me once. Too. Yeah. Slide yeah. down, boom. It's because oh, I was on the it. cell phone, though. It was my fault. And, oh. and never use a knife that's dull. That's the worst. To try to take out an avocado pit. Oh, would you glance off? No, I, 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 I cut, cut my thumb wide open. Ah, jeez. Because uh, the knife didn't go, the blade didn't hit the seed. Right. Bounced off uh. and then took a chunk of my, 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 my head off. Okay, so, so let, me, let me set this up real quick. So we're at the Museum of, of Food and Drinks Benefit and MoFad. Pa- and MoFad and Patrick and Jim are at the same table and they were arguing over who was the straight man in the team. And that which is kind of like an interesting thing. And I said, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're, I love your bread, obviously, uh, have for a long time. Uh, don't you think Tuscan bread sucks? And because, expecting a yes, because of everyone course. thinks it sucks yes. because it, it contains no salt. No salt. Tuscany, it sucks. Yeah. It's like nobody. I said, I said nobody epic- likes Tuscan epic- breads. Tuscans don't like Tuscan bread. The epicenter of where dining at tables began, ground zero as far as his, uh, food historians know, of where the ritual, uh, ritualized meal of everyone sitting around a table was born. Also, and, the Italian language itself was born out of Tuscany. Yeah, a lot came yeah. out of that place. I forgot. E tu tante cose. Parliamoci un po' di italiano. So you guys can't see what I'm uh, looking at, but this looks like a Tuscan loaf, i.e. the crust looks terrible, and the crumb is not well, nearly well, as nice as the normal crumb must, in the Southern Street breads. You have to qualify your, 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 your language. At the end of the day, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, it's, it's Okay, let me put it this way. I won't say anything. It, it, is, it, is, it is sallow. And dry looking, <laughs> but but it's but it by looks design. like a mop. It like it sucks uh, sauce up. It's, well, it's, it's only also duty. consider it this. I mean, this did not ferment. This is an organic wheat from a small mill in Minneapolis called Sunrise uh, Flour Mill, and I I didn't. I'm not used to working with it. It's not like my. Uh, I don't work with this flour. I was sent a sample of some wheat from Mofab. Um, which which it which it went into those loaves that we made for the event, but which were um, delicious. Why, yeah, why, and I, why, and I why missed, that seed? And I missed my mark by about twenty minutes to a half an hour in terms of ideal fermentation, which would have made uh, a, a, a a real big difference in terms of what you see in terms of the crumb structure. However, that being said, when you eat bread in Tuscany and if it's made from local grain, and this is also an argument about the aesthetics of bread and our expectations about bread, especially bread made in a local or regional grain economy, where the quality of the wheats are not going to be um, consistent from season to season. And oftentimes, especially with weather like we have today, when it occurs in like August or September during harvest season, uh, harvest, harvest periods, will most likely lead to wheat that has a, 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 a lesser quality protein. Hmm. 
uh, in terms of its ability to ferment because when there's humidity, you end up uh, on, on dry wheat stalks. Uh, you oftentimes end up with like incidental uh, germination, and that germination destroys the quality. It doesn't doesn't cut into the percentage of protein in the flour and isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's natural. It's what really occurs when you, you really farm and you're not spraying glyphosate in your crops two weeks before harvesting to to kind of make them more sellable, you know? Which so is kind charmingly of, inconsistent, you would say. Well, well, I mean, that's that's what we'd have to get used to. Well, do you, you know? like, do you like, do you ever bake with germinator sprouted grains? Um, sometimes for, 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 like, you know, for my own head, man, you know? Now, like, am, you I, know. am I allowed to just taste this as is? Or yeah, I mean, we can spiel? taste it as is. Do I need a spiel to make it taste good? No, no, no spiel. I don't want to, like, Oh, this is grown in like you know some like farm uh, upstate New York in the in the Champlain River Valley and da, 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 whatever. I mean, I could go off on this whole fucking story, but at the end of the day, it's it's, it's family a, show. I'm sorry, is it? No more cursing. Yeah, family show. Is it? Yeah. I have a caller on the line no, for so Jim. For yeah, Jim, okay, actually, okay, I'm okay. in the wrong place. We have right. a caller on the air. But before the caller gets on, let me just. Get, I'll give you the taste description. It is, do I need to put this? Yeah, yeah put it on. Put it on so you can hear. This is it's oh, it's wow, it's more fermented than most Tuscan loaves I've had. Now it's got a higher uh, turn. Can you turn the headphones up on okay. Jim's? I think. It, turn it down. Oh, turn it down. It's more. Um, it's it's got more acidity than most of Tuscan loaves that I've had. And <laughs> true to form, it tastes like it needs some freaking salt in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, there's. I would say I was cal- just calculate just calculating. There's about a um, a third of one percent of salt. So it isn't, isn't even a percent of salt, uh, but based on the, the batch, maybe even a, a tenth of a percent of salt in the dough. And what's your normal salt percentage? Um, breads in general that we're used to eating anywhere from a percent and a half to two and a half sometimes. Are you part of that more modern two and a half percent? I'm, I'm more a percent and a half. I'm, I'm not a one percenter, but I'm more <laughs> in the a percent and a half. I, I, I like to taste the grain. And were you a one percenter, would you be a Wall Street one percenter or a motorcycle gang one percenter? Well, I mean, it's, well, here's the thing. There's, it's really not the one percent. It's the one tenth. I'm going to sound like Bernie Sanders now. It's the one tenth of the, of the one percent that control 48 percent of the wealth of our nation. And you didn't realize you're going to have Bernie Sanders That's good. That's good. You can, can you also do the, uh, the aardvark? Can you also do the aardvark from the ant and the aardvark cartoon? I know, I well, like, wait, there's, a, there's a caller. There's a caller. I don't want to miss a caller. You're on the air for Jim. Hi, uh, Jim and Dave. This is Jeffrey in Costa Mesa. Dude. How's, how's it going? Good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, so I've, I've been baking a lot of bread and uh, uh, both kind of straight Levon style, or whatever term you, you like to use, and then also hybrid using, you know, incorporating some commercial yeast. And uh, specifically, been interested in, in trying to manipulate how the, the starter, the ferment is, is fed, held, what hydration it's kept at. Because uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of claims out there, let's say, about uh, how that will affect structure, flavor, complexity. Uh, and so I, I, I traveled down this. Yeah, I was going to say that again. Viscosity. Is a uh, a there's no like fixed thing on viscosity as I was saying before with regional wheats. If you want to control the outward appearance of the product in your wheat, for example, varies in protein percent or quality, which can in turn change the absorption. One of the factors that can change and alter the absorption, which therefore affects the viscoelasticity of the dough, i.e., 
its texture when a, when a, when a very precise amount of liquid has been added to it. Um, I would be more concerned as a bread baker or craft baker with the apparent viscoelasticity of the dough than getting caught up with, whoa, I put exactly you know, uh, 85% hydration. Because you might right. get a great bread out of 75% hydration if the wheat is of a different quality. And I think that, you right. know, and in terms of how you hold a, a sourdough starter, uh, the thicker and drier the pre-ferment, the more gradual and slower the rate of, of, of fermentation, the more water, the quick, the, the, the more, uh, the faster it will ferment. Wetter so things for men. Because I tried to start testing variables specifically with that, and realized, like doing side by side, and realized it would just take an eternity to actually nail down the way all of these could potentially oh, affect each oh, other. Oh, wait. So I'm wondering if you can speak to specifically uh, how how feeding, holding, and and the, the hydration level or the viscosity, like you're saying, of the actual pre-ferment, and well, how that let's let's take things. To, how can that affect the the Specifically, the balance of lactic acid. Uh, let's, let's go. Let's go this way. Um, if you if you go online, you can buy these really cool pH meters that you can attach to your iPhone, and you can upload okay. an app. Do those, work? do those work? They do. If if the caliber, my assistant shaking his head like no fucking way. <laughs> you can also buy. There are there are uh, uh, pH meters that you can use to test the pH of of the dough you will find a correlation between in a finished dough you'll find a range or correlation between um, the pH of the dough because you know what happens you mix the dough together and the pH will initially dip a little bit like within the first 15 to 20 minutes and then it will go up it will arc upward like like say six percent, uh, 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 like six pH, and then eventually over. You're talking an, about during the fermentation or yeah, during the baking? Yeah, all, all doughs. Whenever you add flour and water together, and you allow, and and you have some agent fermenting agent, be it commercial yeast, or if I was like Bernie Sanders, if you want a fermentation agent, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I, I, I've been on this whole Bernie Sanders kick lately. You know that he's the only electable. I know I'm getting even more head shakes from my. He's the not, only not, not a political show. Oh shit! Okay, because um, <laughs> the shit won't negative ads won't stick with him, but they're going to stick with Hillary. But I will go back to um, uh, uh, go back to fermentation. So if you measure the pH, you'll you'll see that there's a, a really precise correlation between the pH of the dough. The length of time it takes for the dough to leaven, for example, under whatever constant constant conditions, mm-hmm. i.e. if your house temperature, room temperature, whatever it is, or you use your, your home oven with the pilot light on as like an incubator. Um, right. I don't know to what degree you're, uh, of a bread geek you are, but you sound like pretty much a, a, you know, a bread, bread nerd severe uh, because you're, sure. you're obsessed, which is good. So we're all there. Um, and then... Um, and then you'll see like an end result. You'll see a correlation between the pH and the, the flavor profile. You'll see a correlation between uh, the pH and the effect that the acidity has on, on the dough's ability to, the yeast that exists within the dough's ability to, to leaven um, uh, the bread. Okay. Because at certain pHs, the yeast become inactive, i.e., 
Uh, in the lab, they say 4.4. Uh, but in, in like practically, it's like more like four point when you're at like four point six at least in New York City bread baking, if you're doing sourdough, um, you're 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 pretty much you know dealing with bread that's pretty sour. Um, there's also another factor which is the tap water because tap water varies uh, from pH uh, six point six in environments that are extremely acidic, um, and. Tap water in municipalities can go, I think, as high as uh, uh, eight. Um, uh, but, yeah. but you know, I know. How, how buffered are those? Though, won't the won't the actual biological system of the bread take over the tap water pretty quickly, or no? Um, well, I mean, you have to factor in the pH of the flour, the pH of the water, and then the rate of the the effect of the ferments on the dough. But at least everything that I've read is that when the pH is four point four. Um, that fermentation stops, even if there's available glucose or materials to ferment. It's the acidity itself, which is why a lot of people who maintain and hold starters at too high of a temperature and create these acid cultures are like, I don't know why I keep adding the starter to the dough, but it like just doesn't do anything. It just kind of gets all kind of slack, and they make the bread, and it tastes really tart it's because <laughs> what's going on is if there's no fungal it's just bacterial it's like a, a, a flora you know you just got you have to maintain the right flora for the starter and in terms of to answer your question in a circumlocutious way peripatetic mm-hmm. way um sure. it's really just about you know uh yeasts and microbes are constantly mutating and they will adapt and and become tolerant to conditions that you establish. Um, the ones that we like, the ones that make bread and wine taste good, are the ones that are kind of in the 55 to 68 degree range. And then once you start getting above 68 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to start noticing other types of microbes. It's not to say that you can't maintain a starter for a couple of weeks at 75 degrees Fahrenheit, but eventually it's going to acidify. And that, that balance between the, the symbiotic relationship between those classes of uh, Saccharomyces and those classes of lactobacilli will change. Okay. Is, that, is that cool? And do, do you find it to be a, a kind of a one-to-one uh, balance of if the yeast is more active, the... the Lactobacilli are, are less active, and vice versa. Well, I mean, there's the other thing is that you know it's you know when it's feeding time at the zoo, when it's feeding time at the zoo, you know um, mm-hmm. a, a, a starter with a lower pH that's younger, it will r- react differently with the the finished dough, and even that ratio or proportion of pre-ferment to the finished dough, uh, you know, uh, if I had uh, like a half, uh, 500 grams. Oh, we're going to talk metric, right? Oh, yeah, cool. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, let's yeah, say I had 500 grams of flour and I added 500 grams of, of like, pre ferment, levain, liquid, a stiff kind of mm-hmm. dough, uh, like what we call, I call biga. Um, mm-hmm. And it, the pH of that dough was like 4.5, 4.3, whatever. Um, Hopefully not 3.7 or lower, because then it's so acid that the actual pH of the there's a very the, the window would be too small 
Um, so, but if you add like a large ratio of pre-ferment to finished dough, um, you could even add uh, like uh, 300 grams of flour if the pH of the pre-ferment is on the higher side, like 4.6 and up. You could make a dough where there's actually the, the, the largest component would be the pre-ferment, and then the, you're just adding a little bit of flour and salt to kind of put it together. And your mm-hmm. your fermentation time would be reduced to like an hour, an hour and a half, say. Okay. Um, or like a la no need or a la the methods that I prescribe mostly for practical purposes, maybe not so practical after all. Um, but <laughs> but if you use a small percentage, let's say that, that curve, that window of fermentation is a lot longer, and there's more chances of manipulating it we're coaxing it to get the right end result that you want. Right, but Jim, to go back to what you were saying, and I mean to cut into this, but the the, lo- the, the, lo- the lower the amount of starter that you're pitching in, right, the less the initial actual acidity matters, but the, still the balance of flora in the starter is going to be different if you start with a really acid. In other well, words, like... If you put like an acid, if you put a, a highly acidic starter in a dough that was being maintained at like 75 degrees, and was like just basically a bacterial starter... It's not designed, it's not, it won't function to leaven the bread. It will function to, to cause the, the flour to become, acid, the, the, the paste, the dough, the pasta, to become acidic. And that's all it's going to do. I mean, I've seen bakers in, in Italy that, right. that keep their natural leavening in their bake shop at like, you know, like 100 degrees all the time. And it's like just inedible acidic crap. By the way, Jim hates Italian bread in general, right? No, I, no, I love, I love, I love. <laughs> no, that's not true. I love Italian. I love it. I didn't love you, didn't you go to Italy and tell them that they're all garbage? No, it's a, it's a, <laughs> I, I, no, I went there and, and I and I and I told them that um, that they have a crisis. Yeah. Carlo yeah. Petrini said the same thing. He said the the biggest uh, free fall in terms of Italian quality products with either the fast food culture we live in or modernization is with bread. Mm-hmm. He said they're in a crisis. He said that in 1998, wow. 2000 already. Well, I said it last year. I'm sorry, I'm eating some Tuscan bread with some broccoli rabe. <laughs> he also said the same about cheese. And uh, although he was very much responsible for getting Barolo and Barbaresco up, I mean, literally one vineyard trip at a time, he was like, you should age the grapes longer, you should do all these things, cut off the bad grapes and not use them in the wine. I mean, Barolo and Barbaresco were pretty mediocre wines in the 70s, 80s. So yeah, Carla was saying it about... It no, was, I've, had some, I've had some Barolo from that era that was de- freaking delicious. Well, Nebbiolo grape, that whole region of Barbaresco and stuff, yeah, some could be delicious, of course, but... <laughs> oh, by the way, the uh, the uh, the meat that you brought here is really barnyardy, huh? Patrick loves amazing. it. Patrick loves some barnyard in his meat. This is amazing. This is uh, obviously from De Paolo's because I can always tell when something's made in Europe with my wife's cheeses. I'm like, this is a great American it's cheese. Domestic. Like, it's French. This is domestic. I'm very surprised. Um, I'm very it's excellent. Surprised. Well, I mean, I'm not anymore. I mean, I was going to bring you some of my piggy. Mm-hmm. My my um. Well, you bought my, a whole pig or something? No, I raised. Three pigs last. I've been doing it for the last three years. What breed? Tamworth. Oh wow. Oh, you like Tam? Well, Tams are good mothers, right? So they're easy. They're easier to raise because they won't like squash their kids and like they, they well, can feed themselves. Get, and- my, my neighbors and I usually get like five piglets. I take three. Mm-hmm. 
And then during the summertime, because I have a house upstate in Sullivan County, I, I like any time we're cooking, every day, usually at the end of the day, I just head over to the, the, I don't want to call it a pigsty, because they have like a little bit of a yard, but then they've got like two acres of woods to forage in. So the animals, you know, go the summer mm-hmm. eating vegetable scraps and whatever critters they find as they're rooting up the earth. It's um, a great bacon hog, the tamworth. Yeah, yeah, it's a phenomenal meat. I, I don't. I, they don't muscle up though, right? Yeah, they're a leaner hog. It's very rare that I actually buy. Um, I buy pork from. From, I mean, I, I only, I only eat my own. Well, that'll explain why we haven't gotten any orders from you in the past. Sorry about that. Listen, before, before, <laughs> like before this is over, we should talk about the Tuscan bread. Now, listen, wham, wham. I want you to sell me. Now, now, do you see what I'm saying though about the Tuscan bread's function? Is really a blank canvas. A blank no, no, canvas no, 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 for the no, no, food. No, 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 no. I don't, I'm not buying it. Here's the, the thing. Canvas. But you, you, you can't eat this. Right, you can't can eat, I, you can can't eat the trouble? pecorino and you can't eat the oil without wishing instead that we were eating your like semi decesimal. Well, like, pro- I'm like, oh, well, you know what I wish? I wish I just had the semi decesimal. I, I wasn't in Tuscany. Or however you pronounce oh. it. Se- I, it's semi- funny. I was in Chelsea. For me, there's, there's the, the, the act. Or a Pugliese or yeah, any but one for of me, this is very nostalgic. And I actually kind of, in some ways, like my favorite breakfast is Tuscan bread, saltless butter. And, and honey. Is that is that like saying that I also like Twinkies? That's even more Maybe. cruel. It's <laughs> more saltless can butter I, too. Can, is there any way I can get a beer? I, I yeah, think that beer need, that you're drinking looks really sure. good. I need some salt. I think. Yeah, because I, I like eating all this salty food. We're a full service establishment. Okay. But, but and, like, and um, you know we have we have a, a, a PhD here in, in anthropology and sociology, Costas Gunis, who's flown in all the way from Crete. To share with us his insights and thoughts about about this discussion. So, hi, so give us give us some thoughts on the on the on the discussion from a Cretan perspective. <laughs> I won't get into it. No? It's out of my. It's not my field. Let me ask you this. I'm enjoying it. This is your chance let me, let me to bash Italy. It. Let me ask you this: the, the bread in Crete, they put salt in it, do they not? Yes, they do. What do you think of this particular? You know how good. Jim's bread is right. What do you think of this? Um, interesting. <laughs> I mean, uh, bland. Diplomatic. Bland. Bland. Yeah. bland. Mm. Also, the crust doesn't have the same. It doesn't have it's the texture that it should have. Yeah, it's like mushy or uh, stretchy. It's dry. Dry. The way Tuscan bread is baked, it's baked with no salt or little or no salt. It's uh, baked. Usually, initially, the, everything, every bakery that does it the, the, the traditional way tries to maintain a dry oven for the first three to seven minutes of the bake, where, whereby the dough, in this case, because the dough was um, under-fermented, it kind of rounds out a little bit, lifts off the floor of the oven, forms a crust or skin on the dough, the opposite of what you would think. Right, like you're not looking for humidity, and then. But how do they how do they do that? Do they use a low load in the they, oven? Or? No, they either open up the damper and the door at, at loading in, or you know the whole, and then it's baked at between 380 and 400 degrees, depending upon the bakery, for a lot longer than you would normally bake. So you end up with this loaf of bread that actually kind of is kind of semi-stale in a way. Right. 
to begin with, but it doesn't really stale. Like, I can ha- eat this bread in three days, and it's actually not that different than it is today. <laughs> it's like, and, and, it starts and, off as two-day-old, but it stays there. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't, you know, but the idea of what is staleness, staleness is a a perceptual thing. That's an elasticity of the crust. Well, no, it's, I, I, I mean, yes, you Chewier. could say that. But well, it, there's technical explanations, and then there's when you eat it, does it taste like garbage? Well, right? well, are, no, that's, well, that's subjective when you right. say that something tastes like garbage. It's all relative. I mean, for me, Oscar there's the something. Garbage. I'm not saying this is garbage. That's I mean, like, one of my favorite snacks would be, like, this bread. Like, I didn't bring, uh, I was in a, bring some garlic in a toaster oven, but I, I, I couldn't, couldn't bring all that stuff with me. But just to do fetunta, <laughs> You know, just to do to- the bread, toasted, right. rub with garlic, a little bit of olive oil. I go one step further. I like to put vinegar on my bread because I just so, like vinegar. So you're saying this is actually baked longer, even though the crust color is a lot lower than what it would normally be because of the... My, my, my daughter doesn't like it when I talk with food in my mouth, but I'm going to go go for it. Two-minute warning, Dave. All right, yeah, come on. Oh, shit. The bread is baked at a lower temperature, which is why the color of the bread is the way it is. Right, right. If there was a higher quantity of salt, or any percentage of salt over over 1%, you would end up with the scarring that takes, I call it salt scarring, where the little alveoli that are along the surface of the dough would kind of uh, become places where the salt would crystallize. So you end up having like, you end up seeing, you ever seen like bread that's kind of like, kind of like, Pale and white, but it's like overcooked. Yes, that's like I call I, my name for it is salt scarring. And you see like the little white dots. Like if you see dough that's slow fermented or fermented in refrigerators, which is very popular these days. Oh, you again. don't like you don't like refrigeration retarding. I just uh, well, I think it's I think it's a little retarded. Ha ha ha. <laughs> no, I think it's. Um, I think it's yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I guess. What I if guess. someone doesn't do it every day and they realize it's rising too fast? They need to slow it down a little bit. Um, it's really convenient that we have refrigeration. It's lovely that we have it. I'm a big supporter. I'm a big yes. Yeah, so you're you're in the meat biz. Um, I mean, you wouldn't say like throw it and throw it in the fridge, and the next time pitch less in or what? Well, I mean, you know, as as a uh, a, a thing of convenience, yeah, we have refrigeration. But in general, I like I like live baking. I like the element of risk. I like that I have to kind of be kind of connected to the the process of the fermentation, so that I I can control it without necessarily having to employ uh, like whatever a, a battery of refrigerators and increase my carbon footprint right. can, can I ask one last question because it was so interesting to HRNN News did you say I'm just wanting to make a, a quote if it's possible that climate change and El Nino and global warming could perhaps be negatively affecting the quality of artisan bread around the world is there a direct correlation did I hear you kind of ended that no, no, way, because it's way, too El dry. El Nino still or... makes me think of Chris Farley. <laughs> I am El Nino. No, of course, but I thought you said weather affects the bread. It could lower the quality of local granaries' mm. ingredients. There's a reason why during our colonial period. Excuse me, one second. Oh. Fucking broccoli, Rob. One, one minute, Dave. Yeah. All right. During during our colonial period, wheat was grown everywhere. Brooklyn was like the epicenter of wheat agriculture, and in, in at least in this state. Yeah, and one of the great apples in the world came out of there, but now Spitzenberg? it's... Spitzenberg? Spitzenberg, yeah. So right now, uh, you know, we can grow wheat here. It's just that our expectation about what good bread is, it's like you can't fit square pegs into round holes without kind of losing a little bit of the squareness, a little bit of the roundness of each. 
And so I think that our idea about what good bread is needs to change. Like, we're still kind of stuck in this dialogue of, like, does it have big holes and stuff? And, like, does it, you know? You know, you know what we didn't get to? It's pissing me off. Everyone wants to know where do they go after the no-need technique so that they can use your technique but build up to make yeah, different styles go. of bread. And we're not going to have time to get well, into it. I have a new book coming out, and it, and it has a whole thing on using natural leavening for no need. I'm doing it with— When's it coming out? God knows. Um, I'm doing it with Maria. Yeah. Well, okay. So look out for the, look out for that. <laughs> Secondly, but but, but you know it's, it is it is it is it is it will it will come out. I know that we're like at the final phases of retesting recipes, and hopefully by next year. Next year. Do yeah. you do you believe in labeling? Huh? Do you like to label things in the kitchen? Um, I I personally love labeling. Okay. I here, do here, here. Take this. This what? is a limited edition, thank you, Cooking Issues, blue tape keychain. Oh, it's wow. so cute. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for I coming on Cooking Wait, on the, on the way out as they're playing the theme, what is the most alarming piece of garbage in the bread world today? What's the worst thing Besides that's happening in bread? Besides Tuscan bread? Besides Tuscan By the way, Jim, Jim has taught us, Jim has taught us, it's not bad, it's F different. You. It's not it's different. different. It's different. Love things for what they are. I what? Like home what, is, what is, what, Martin's potato rolls? Oh! That, 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 they, they do taste good, but I mean, I'm not like a, I just think bad bread is bad bread, I mean. Gosh, fast food wow. is fast food. I'm sorry. I don't care what corporation is behind us. Wow. I don't Cooking issues. I know. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.